All right, so now we're going to look at the seven angels, the seven bowls of judgment, and then uh, an interesting statement, the smoke in heaven. So first, starting with the seven angels and the seven bowls um, in this temple in heaven, it says, after these things, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. So what is this testimony or tabernacle of testimony? Well, in Exodus 25, we see that this testimony is the law which was written on the tablets of stone. And in Exodus 38, we see this tabernacle of testimony phrase used to speak of the tabernacle or temple, which is in the wilderness, in which the Ark of the Covenant rested, uh, which was, of course, the home of the tablets of stone uh, written by the hand of God and then rewritten by Moses because he broke the first ones. Uh, but this is the first temple, and uh, we have what is uh, kind of like a chiasm here, but it's not an explicit one. It's, it's uh, implicit, uh, where we've got this tabernacle in the wilderness, and we're going to end history uh, where there's no temple, but we are in the tabernacle of God because he himself is the temple in Revelation 21 and 22. So you can look forward to that, but uh, we do have the temple of Solomon, which was built in 966 BC and uh, remained until 586 BC in the conquest of Babylon. Uh, you can look at 1 Kings 6 to see that temple. Herod's temple, which was built in 515 under Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and it lasted until AD 70 when it was destroyed by Titus and uh, his uh, Roman cohort in the sack of Jerusalem. And it has not been rebuilt since, but there will be a third temple built, and that will be by the Antichrist, or at least by permission of the Antichrist. Um, it could be a similar uh, means of acquiring a temple as uh, in the day of Ezra, but this will happen during the tribulation period. The temple may be built before the tribulation period, um, even before the rapture of the church, it's very possible. Um, however, we don't know how long the period of time between the rapture and the tribulation is. Uh, it could be long enough to build a temple. Um, so we really don't have any idea when this temple will be rebuilt. Um, but it will be functioning during the first half of the tribulation period because Daniel 9, 24 through 27 tells us that when the Antichrist comes on the scene at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will put an end to the sacrifices of the temple. So there needs to be a temple. It needs to be operating uh, at the time that the Antichrist ends peace in uh, Israel. But this false temple of the Antichrist, the third temple, is not the last temple because Ezekiel 40 uh, through 48 and uh, other passages in the minor prophets especially uh, talk about the temple that will be in, in the land in, during the Messiah's reign. Um, we call this the Messianic temple or the fourth temple uh, that will be present for 1,000 years during the reign of Jesus Christ. Um, I believe this will be built in the 75-day interval uh, between the tribulation and uh, and the reign of Christ in chapter 20. So we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 19. 
Uh, but finally, there will be no temple in the eternal state. And that's how we distinguish, or that's one of the many ways of distinguishing between the eternal state and the millennial kingdom, uh, because there will be a temple and there will be temple sacrifices during Jesus Christ's earthly reign. Uh, but there will be no physical temple um, during the eternal state because it says that Jesus Christ himself is our temple uh, in Revelation 21. But uh, because here in the text we've got the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven, uh, simply looking at uh, one of these temples here, which are all earthly temples, uh, does not suffice. So we have to look elsewhere. And we see um, actually throughout scripture, we've got evidence even back in uh, Exodus, but we're looking at Hebrews, which gives us uh, more of a, a full understanding through uh, progressive revelation of what this, uh, what the first temple uh, was built after. So here in Hebrews 9, it says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Now this is speaking of the earthly temple. And the author of Hebrews continues a few verses later to say, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So this is speaking of a temple that is not made by the hands of man, uh, this is not an earthly temple that Jesus Christ uh, entered through. Acts 7.44 gives us yet some more uh, depth to our understanding here, that uh, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. So we can ask ourselves, what pattern had Moses seen? Um, and what seems to reveal itself from scripture is that Moses saw the pattern of the heavenly temple and was instructed to model the tabernacle on the earth after that pattern in heaven. In Hebrews 8, uh, we have this evidenced as well. It says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So we see that what Moses created in the wilderness was not really the first temple or the first tabernacle. It was a copy of the first or the true tabernacle in heaven. And that is what we're seeing in Revelation 15. We see the heavenly temple, the only one there has ever been, and the one that will continue forever. <clears throat> so this is, again, not like the false tribulation temple. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, we see that this is a blasphemous temple. It says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed 
the son of destruction, that is the false Christ, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. You'll remember from Isaiah 14 and, yeah, from Isaiah 14, that uh, Satan's goal is to exalt himself above God. And he's going to try to do so by installing his Messiah, the false Messiah, in the temple of God and claim to be God himself. In fact, exalting himself above God. All right, the last little thing I want to pull out from uh, verses five and six is uh, the clothing worn by the angels. Uh, some try to identify Christ in the first chapter of Revelation as an angel rather than Jesus Christ because he's wearing the same clothes as the angels here in chapter 15. So in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, uh, John is going to fall down and worship this, uh, this being. So we know that it is not an angel because at the end of Revelation, John again falls down and worships a being, but that being is clearly identified as an angel and it tells John not to worship him because he can't describe worship to anyone but God. Um, so this being allowing John to worship him indicates very clearly that it is Jesus Christ himself, especially since uh, the phrase son of man is always used in conjunction with Jesus Christ in these prophetic uh, passages. <clears throat> so these, uh, this similarity of garments worn by uh, the angels, um, we can relate to a general wearing the same colors as his soldiers. Uh, in the U.S. Army, there are uh, there is a uniform to be worn, and though the uniform might differ in some ways, it is identifiable that uh, no matter what stage of the army you're in or what level of army you're in, uh, you can be identified uh, by your uniform of what you are in allegiance with. So it's no surprise to us that Christ's servants are clothed in a similar way or even very close to the same way, but that does not equate Christ with, uh, with the creatures who serve him. For example, here in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8, we see the church clothed similarly to how Christ is clothed. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And our righteousness comes from Christ. Our righteous acts are only righteous because the Holy Spirit works them through us. So our righteousness being his righteousness, we are identified with him um, by wearing garments which only he could produce for us. All right, so we're going to look then at these seven bowls which the angels take. Uh, it says, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We're not going to go into great detail about these because this is what we're going to spend our next two weeks looking at are these uh, seven bowls. But uh, 
it's important here, I believe, because it's in the text, it's important. Um, but John identifies God as the one who lives forever and ever, stressing his, uh, his everlastingness that the other uh, gods or so-called gods um, are not living. And even Satan um, has an end. But Jesus Christ, God the Father, uh, they have no end. They live forever and ever. They always were and they always will be. So in Revelation 1, 17 through 18, again, right at the beginning of our book, um, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So the one who is enacting the wrath, the one from whom this wrath flows, uh, not only has just uh, justice behind his wrath, uh, but he has the power behind his wrath being the almighty one. Um, and he has also uh, paid for redemption of those who have faith uh, on the basis of his death. And now he lives forevermore. <clears throat> All right, the bold judgments, uh, just quickly, I'll list them here, and you can look forward to uh, next week when we discuss them in more detail from the text. Um, so these judgments are sores, uh, the sea turning to blood. Now, this isn't a third of the sea. This is the entire sea. It is different from our trumpet judgments. Um, all the rivers and uh, fresh water is going to turn to blood. Uh, the sun is going to increase in intensity so that it scorches the earth. Uh, darkness will be a judgment over the beast's kingdom. This is probably a localized judgment. It may be uh, throughout the whole earth, um, but it's most likely localized. We'll look at that. Those are our five that we'll look at next week. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to look at the drying up of the Euphrates for the kings of the east to cross. This is the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon. And then we're, we will look at the complete destruction uh, of the entire earth, cosmological uh, destruction of the earth. All right, <clears throat> our last few verses. Uh, I just want to pull out uh, one detail here, the smoke in heaven. Um, it says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So. This isn't, again, the first time there has been smoke in the heavenly temple, nor is it the first time that smoke has appeared in any of the temples of God. Uh, but at this point, the smoke of uh, God's glory will so fill the temple that no one will be allowed or permitted into it um, until after all of his judgments are finished. So that means that until we are in at least the millennial kingdom, uh, no one will be allowed um, to enter into this temple. It will be vacated during these judgments. In Exodus chapter 40, at the very end of uh, Exodus, these are the last few verses, we see that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this is um, indicating, again, the glory of the Lord, uh, the Shekinah glory. Uh, it is represented both in um, fire, in smoke, um, in light. 
Um, so here, this glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle uh, is likely his Shekinah glory. Again, in 1 Kings 8, at the completion of the first temple, the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, we read, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. We look forward to Ezekiel 11, where during the exile uh, from the first temple, uh, from the land of Jerusalem, from the land of Israel, um, that the glory of God departed from the temple. So when it came in uh, 1 Kings 8 and rested in the temple, um, it stayed there. But here in Ezekiel 11, it departs from there. The presence of God will no longer be with Israel until the millennial kingdom. So in Ezekiel 11, the prophet Ezekiel sees uh, the cherubim lift up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. It departed from Israel at that point and does not return again until Ezekiel 44, uh, which is again in our millennial temple section, chapter 40 to 48. It says, then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell on my face. This is Ezekiel. Uh, standing in the millennial temple, watching the glory return to the earthly temple that Jesus Christ will build on this earth. But we also have this glory in the heavenly temple. Isaiah gets uh, an, a look into the heavenly temple um, in chapter six of his prophecy. It says, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered uh, his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We can think back to chapter uh, four of Revelation when the uh, four living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Uh, but it says the foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now, this speaks of God's judicial judgment over Israel for their uh, faithlessness, um, and he is coming to judge them. But in Isaiah, he also gives them many promises of future restoration. But this smoke um, indicates his glory, but it also indicates his glory in judgment. So as his final judgment is about to be poured out on this earth, we see his smoke increasing to such a degree, his glory increasing to such a degree through judgment and his righteousness uh, that no one is allowed to be in its presence, probably because of its severity and its perfect holiness. So next week, we will look at the uh, bold judgments that these angels pour out on the earth and... Uh, I have just the first verse of that here. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So that will be the final judgments brought down on the earth, and that will um, destroy and complete this earth um, in its present state, just as the flood of Noah destroyed this earth completely. 
It's still the same earth that we will be on during the millennial kingdom, but it will be as if it were restored. It will be restored by Jesus Christ. So once again, I'm letting you guys know that um, I will be teaching a class in Tacoma um, at Tacoma Grace Bible Church starting in March, March 15th, on the life of Messiah. Uh, our first session is going to be a fun one. We're going to talk about a bit of the history of the temple uh, in, uh, in Israel, the expectation of the Messiah, uh, the politics around Israel in the first century, and then we're going to do a fun a little dive into how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. When it says that a prophecy is fulfilled, how is it fulfilling that prophecy? And uh, what was their messianic expectation? Um, so I hope that uh, any of you who are local can join us for that. Uh, it will be a fun time of fellowship, but uh, an even more fun time of uh, learning about the Jewish context of Jesus' life. I know most uh, studies in the life of Christ focus uh, on him as if he were a Greek, because the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, but it's not even likely that he was speaking Greek. He was probably speaking Hebrew in a Hebrew context, in a Hebrew world that greatly rejected uh, Greek thought and Greek culture. Uh, so we want to uh, contextualize Christ in his Jewish context, um, so that we can understand his Old Testament and New Testament purposes as the Messiah of Israel. So uh, I hope you guys can uh, join us here at Tacoma Grace for that. Um, it will not be a live broadcasted class, so uh, better if you are able to uh, be here physically. I apologize to those who are not local. Uh, they will be recorded and uh, you will be able to view them on our website, but not on our YouTube channel. All right, so with that, uh, we finished tonight's study. Are there any questions? I have a question, Jane. Um, so how do we know, how do we delineate, like in Ezekiel, how do we know when something's a millennial prophecy? Um, uh, yeah, primarily by the context. Uh, I, Ezekiel 44 is... Uh, right in the middle of context where it, it'll say like this is when the lord is reigning uh or when yeah, the lord is reigning so we'd have to start in ezekiel 44 um to ascertain that context and rest uh, recognize that it's not speaking of uh the present but it's speaking of a time in history that uh nothing matches yet the uh the description of that time the place um what it looks like uh, we're planning to do Daniel next in our Bible study. That's only 14 chapters, after, or 12 chapters. Um, after Daniel, we're going to do Ezekiel. So we will get some time to look at why we make certain distinctions there. But uh, context is king. So it takes a long time to study out those contexts and make sure um, you've, uh, you've got it figured out. Um, but there are certain places in scripture where it's, it's pretty clearly identified for us within the context. And uh, that is one of them because it speaks of a temple that has never existed on this earth yet. Gotcha. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, another good example, um, if you want to go and do some practice, would be uh, Isaiah 65 and 66. 
that, that also speaks of the uh, millennial kingdom. And you can look at the, uh, the description of what life is like at that time and see how it correlates with the millennial kingdom. Got it. All right, anyone else? Uh, that was kind of a lot to take in. For being such a short chapter, there is there's a lot to pull out of it. Good study. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I'll, good. Good. All right, I'm going to end in prayer, and then I'll end the live stream. And then if we want to uh, do any more chat or questions off air, we can do that. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for the gift of prophecy. Uh, we thank you for the hope that we can have, um, that we worship a God who knows the beginning from the end, who has planned out justice and judgment for the end. And though uh, some of these judgments do look uh, intense, that some of them do look beyond what is necessary, um, we can have confidence that you are a God of justice, that uh, this is your passion at work, and you are a gracious God, and you are a long-suffering God, and we are looking forward towards the end of a very long history of grace. So we want to keep that in mind as we continue to look at these judgments and at the glorious reign of your Son, um, who is coming after these judgments. We long for that day. We long to be present with the Lord, um, whether by death or by rapture. Uh, we long to be united with him. We know that we're just pilgrims on this earth. We pray that we can be about the Lord's business uh, while we are here. We pray all these things uh, in your name, Lord, and for your glory. Amen. Amen.